Hello there, I'm Christopher Lee, and you? You are very welcome at the Sipret Roundtable here in London Town. Today's programme is devoted to one subject, or rather, it is devoted to the answer to one big question that touches everyone. What does the rest of the world think of British forces and the United Kingdom after six years in Iraq? In the studio, the director of the Royal United Services Institute, Professor Michael Clark, the head of the Middle East programme at the London think tank Chatham House, Dr Claire Spencer, sometime foreign policy advisor to the Kremlin, Alexandra Nakrasov, and one who covered much of the five, six years of the Iraq conflict, the BBC's Hugh Sykes, and from the University of Salford, Professor Eric Grove. Now, um, Eric, yes. I was thinking, you know, the RAF uh, the other day withdrew just a few, a few days ago, about a week ago, was it, from, from, from Basra, that in fact this didn't all begin in 1991 no. or 2003. No, it, 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 well, it, it being Iraq, uh, British forces have been operating there ever since we first took it over. And, of course, the RAF cut their teeth in Iraq, all the people we associate with the bomber offensive, Harris, Portal. They started off bombing Kurds on behalf of the Iraqi government and uh, as part of the aerial policing policy. So British forces have been... Because it was on the cheap, wasn't it? Yes, it could, I mean, it's ever since... We, we first, in, in a sense, in, in, we first invaded Iraq to get at the Turks, the Mesopotamian campaign during the First World War, and there are still a lot of graves of British soldiers around there from that Mesopotamian campaign and from putting down the first of the many Iraqi revolts. Hugh, um, there is a, a long history... As, as Eric was saying, but it's a history which everybody understands in Iraq, doesn't it, of the British there? Yes, and the, many of the people that I've met there, especially in Basra in 2003, and surprisingly still in Basra this year, in April this year, very well disposed towards the British. There's still a British war cemetery, not where nearly as well maintained as the Commonwealth war graves in Belgium and northern France, broken down broken gravestones, but out in the desert, chillingly and movingly, there is a very well-maintained war memorial with at least 8,000 names at a rough count, with a central high obelisk and lots of archways with large slate slabs with the names carefully printed on them of British and Empire soldiers who died in Mesopotamia between 1914 and 1921 in what was known as the Iraq campaign. This whole memorial was moved lock, stock and barrel by Saddam Hussein for some bizarre reason and reassembled out in the desert. And we eventually found it the other day by asking police posts and soldiers and eventually a little boy singing, selling soft drinks and he said, ah, you mean the church? And we thought, oh yes, he probably does think it's a church. And there it was, an obelisk on the horizon in the middle of nowhere in the desert near Basra, remembering British and Empire forces who died there at the beginning of the 20th century. Yeah. Claire, by the time we got to, um, I was going to say 2003, but really I suppose 1991, because that's the association we have now. I mean, what did we think of Iraq? Do you, can, you, can you work that out? I mean, we, did we think, well, by that time, so what, Iraq? That's Saddam's country. Nothing to do with the history that, that Hugh was talking about and Eric talking about. I think, about. yes, in, in popular thought, I mean, I, I'm, I'm thinking actually more of neighbouring Iran, where amazingly the British are still held 
responsible for all sorts of things that happen, which are clearly being decided first in Washington. And, and I think it's at our peril. I mean, when I was listening to Eric, I was thinking, actually, we didn't just go to Iraq early on. We invented Iraq. Absolutely, I mean, the lines, yes. you know, the lines in the sand, the creation of the state of Iraq was the mission in the 1920s. And there is a certain parallel, as historians like Charles Tripp of Iraq will demonstrate, between the failure to do so then and the failure to do so now because Iraq, until we invented it, was never a unitary state. It was always, I mean, we classically talk about different states as being at the crossroads of different empires, but Iraq really was. You know, it was uh, on the edges of the Ottoman Empire. Um, it was frequently the site where battles were fought between, I was trying to remember who now, but bits of uh, bits of the Greek and Roman empires. I mean, it's, there's... Uh, Alexander it's, the Great. Alexander the Great, for example, I mean, in Islamic history, um, Kerbala is the site where, um, who was it? Imam Ali, Hussein, Imam Hussein was Imam killed. Abbas. This is where Shiism was born. Um, exactly, the, the um, Ali, who was the um, son-in-law of uh, the Prophet Muhammad, is buried in Najaf. I mean, there there is many much redolence there and the British episode in the region really the contribution to Iraq was to create the place and try uh, and fail unfortunately to create uh, a modern state and so by by the 80s we'd largely forgotten this. Yeah well I mean Michael I was just I'm just asking about modern perceptions but just snip back to um, say the 1920s and the Cairo conference trying to sort out Iraq. Mm. I mean, one of the reasons there was the, was the colonial secretary, Churchill at the time, wasn't he? He was That's running right, it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, Churchill's idea was that if I get this sorted out and I do it on the cheap, then I'll become Chancellor of the Exchequer. Yeah, it was a way of... Uh, uh, the, the, the requirement was to do something with all these large imperial possessions. Remember, in 1919, the British Empire was at its, its greatest geographical extent, and yet the British state was fairly bankrupt after the war. So everything had to be, had to be tidied up quickly and on the cheap. And as Eric said... I mean, Imperial policing was by a few aircraft, and the, I would say the RAF has never been so effective either before or since. I mean, a few aircraft and a few people actually controlled and dominated a lot of other uh, tribespeople. Wing Commander uh, Harris, indeed, and became Bomber Harris. It didn't last for very long, as Eric said. It didn't last for long because the, effect, the novelty of the aircraft pretty quickly wore off. But, but the other thing that I think is important, is, as Claire said, that um, you know we created this state, but we also created a state that could only be run by a, a strong dictatorial government. And it used to be us. Yeah. We used to be the, the Saddam Hussein, in effect. When Iraq became effectively independent, it could only survive with a very strong dictator. And if Maliki turns out to be a, an effective democratic... The, prime minister, the present prime minister. Present prime minister. If he turns out to be a democratically an effective prime minister, he'll be the first proper de democrat, really, in the history of Iraq. And it won't be surprising if he ends up as, or somebody ends up as 70 or 80 percent Saddam. Um, Claire, the 1991 Iraq war was the easiest one, easy one to justify, wasn't it? Well, I think um, looking at the history, Saddam least expected it. I, he didn't expect when he took over Kuwait, it was part of a deal. He'd cobbled behind the scenes a reward, if you like, that he would be allowed to take over Kuwait. So he was shocked. And well, he thought that from the American Shahnameh, yeah, didn't he? At the time. Exactly. That was the understanding. So he wasn't really that well prepared for it. And of course, the objectives were limited. It was get him out of Kuwait. So there was uh, a wide consensus across the region, uh, including, we've forgotten now, but including states like Syria uh, were on side. The Gulf was largely on side to do this. 
because, of course, if he'd been allowed to get away with it, the precedent set for these equally invented states around the Middle East would have been equally dire. Everyone has agreed, despite uh, pan-Arabism, that the boundaries which exist in the Middle East should stay the same. So with limited objectives and no intention whatsoever of either going in there or staying in Iraq, of course it was easier to achieve. Um, Alexander Nekrasov, 1991, this period of this war, was also a period when... Um, Soviet Union was becoming Russia. Well, disintegrated. Disintegrating, yes. yes. Yes, And that's why, actually, I think that history would have been different if there was a Soviet Union then in 1991, because I I don't really know how it it would have developed, but I don't think it it would have been that easy to stop Saddam for the Western uh, nations. Go on, why? Well, simply because they were, the Soviet Union would have been on the side of Iraq. I mean, in, in a firm way. In 1991, the Soviet Union... Why would Union, it have been on well, the side well, of Iraq? Well, I mean, c- come on. That was a you know, standoff between the, the, the Soviet Union and Americans everywhere. So why, it was more why, why, was, why was the Soviet Union you know, on the side of some of the most horrible dictators in Africa? Because it was, it was, it was a game with the Americans. And uh, b- because Russia was falling apart, it was probably the worst year for Russia, 1991. Mm. And uh, I think that's why it went that way. And uh, in a sense, I'd like to pick on the point that you mentioned that the, there was always respect for the British in Iraq. And that's what the Soviets found, you know, the advisors. Because they said to me, they don't really like us. They still dream of the, of the British. <laughs> it's, it's true now. As the Americans are taking over. I heard a lot of hostility expressed towards the Americans and a lot of um, admiration and affection towards the British, despite the fact that several people, almost in the same breath, also said, we won't miss them because they really didn't achieve anything at all in this terrible, broken city. 1958 was really the the key year, in a way. That's when Iraq kind of changed sides. Up until 1958, Iraq had been very much in the British sphere and the Western sphere, and then there was, after Suez, there was a a revolution, and you've got General Qasim, who immediately threatened Kuwait, and so he flew in troops in in 1961, among them Paddy Ashdown, Royal Marine, and then... only person that anybody knows who went to Kuwait. <laughs> well, I, I think and Brunei. Brunei too. And Brunei, too. Brunei, right. Brunei, right. 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 Maybe he was the only one there. <laughs> no, he wasn't the only one there. But it was a classic example, in fact, of this sort of maritime reinforcement policy, and it was used mercilessly by the Navy to maintain their amphibious and carrier forces mm. in the early 1960s. Um, and, of course, it, this... With given the general Soviet backing, as we've just heard, for these Arab nationalist states, it, it, it fell very much into the Soviet sphere. Although Saddam did sort of have his in, have his friends in the West as well, didn't he? I mean, the, uh, especially when he attacked Iran, because yeah, Iran was seen as the great threat. Where have you heard that before? And so you get these strong Western connections, where the Americans are actually helping target Iraqi aircraft. I mean, it's quite remarkable, actually, the extent of the American help to Saddam Hussein in that period. American and British, of course, photographs of Donald Rumsfeld uh, shaking hands with Saddam Hussein and a a great body of evidence that the Americans and the British were both together supplied gas to Saddam Hussein uh, which helped him in his uh, gassing campaign against the Kurds. mention the French with their exocets. Exactly, yes. I think they were supplying both sides, weren't they? The great great paradox of the exocet attack on the American ship was it was after that that the Americans said, look, we must stop this kind of accident going on. Let's bring our troops, uh, let's bring our planners uh, to help you directly in in Baghdad so we can deconflict. Okay, Mike, we've, we've actually, I think, set up that history that it was sort of controllable uh, up until the point we get to 
2001 with the arrival in the White House and then 2000 of, of, of the new Bush administration, 2002 when they said, you know, we've really got to go there. Yeah. How yeah. is it that... And you, I know you used to go to, say, place like number 10 and say, look, you know, if you do this, it's going to be a problem. How is it that the Iraq war, the 2003 Iraq war, appeared to make no sense to anyone outside of George Bush's administration? That was the problem. Because it made sense inside the Bush administration, you know, the 9-11 attacks had started a, a new wave of thinking. They said, you know, supposing these attacks had had chemical. Uh, not just aircraft. Supposing there had been, you know, f- been a chemical attack as well. Where would they get the chemical from? There's a, there's a, there's a lot of unfinished business with Saddam. Iraq is a nuisance. It's not a strategically important country, but it's a nuisance. It defies us. And the, 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 the Bush administration's focus. The immediate focus, first of all, was on Somalia, because that's where they thought the attack might have originated. Then it went to Afghanistan and stayed there for a while. Then it went to Iraq, and the Americans were always very clear that that was the real nub of the business, to, to demonstrate, to establish deterrence against terrorism, all sorts of, of, of strange motivations. For the rest of the world, if the Americans were determined to do this, then the rest of the world had to take a view. And Tony Blair went to uh, Crawford in uh, April 2002, and he came back from that first real meeting with Bush saying, look, the Americans Americans are going to do it. Whatever happens, they're going to do it. So we've got to take a view on this. And the view is, how can we not support them when we've been with them all through the 90s? We were there in 91. We've been part of the no-fly zone. I mean, remember, the French were in it to, to be, and pulled out of the no-fly zone in 1995. So it left the British and the Americans operating this this sort of proxy war. Sorry, not proxy war, but an, a, a sort of distant air war. And this was them. a John Major idea, wasn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. So f- f- for Blair, and I think history will judge Blair a bit more sympathetically than, than people have done, you know, his contemporaries have done, they will say, what else was he going to do? Now, the argument is, well, if you were going to stick with America in this disastrous policy, and a lot of us said it was going to be fairly disastrous, um, if they were going to stick with them, they should have asked for more. We should have had more influence. The issue is the British are there to say yes, but. The Americans heard the yes, and we never mentioned mentioned the but, and that was the problem. But Uh, but, But we, they, the British and the Americans achieved an enormous uh, success. They got rid of Saddam. It was mm-hmm. what happened afterwards, which was the problem, wasn't it? Yeah, but the, the argument about getting rid of Saddam, was, was that was an, an American objective, but it wasn't the way it was sold elsewhere. Yeah. It was all to do with yeah. weapons of mass destruction. Of course. Yeah. It, so, it, and you remember, even a week before... Shift. The, yeah, exactly. I mean, even, even a week before the invasion, Jack Straw was sta- standing up, the Foreign Secretary, standing up in the House of Commons, saying, if, if Saddam will agree to this, this and this then the crisis is over. So, you know, even a week before we launched the invasion, we were prepared to leave Saddam there. But the Americans always thought that if we can humiliate Saddam enough, we'll get rid of him. And sure, for the Iraqis, the war was was ultimately a good thing. But it was a strategic blunder in the sense that all of the things that, that we wanted to arrange strategically were made worse by the victory, not better. And the winner from the whole thing, history I'm sure would judge, uh, is Iran. I agree entirely. Yeah. Tell me, Claire, when um, we reached that point of saying, well, it's the weapons of mass disappearance or whatever they hmm. were, uh, we had Hans Blix, the, um, at the International Atomic Energy Agency, the people who were supposed to be... Yeah. Yeah, were, were people who were supposed to sort of know what was going on there. And they were saying, no, 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 they, they ain't there. But we, it was almost as if we were just sort of sweeping them out the way. We weren't taking any notice of what they were saying. 
Well, it seems to be a question of time. You know, it was obvious that if we didn't go in at the end of March, we'd have to wait through the summer. It was too hot, etc. So I think the Hans Blix type arguments were we're not entirely sure. Well, we haven't found anything and we're doubtful, but it needs more time to actually verify. Um, and I, I just I just think it's it's it, I'm still not convinced by Mike's arguments that, you know, that the that history will be kind to Tony Blair, because I, I think, you know, there's been such a head of wind and we haven't yet had the inquiry here about the illegality. And I see day to day the damage this has done for the British reputation in the Middle East and indeed the status of the British in terms of, well, what did the British get out of this? Well, I, know, I know we'll come on to this, but the, but the fact that I, I agree in, in so far as we sold ourselves short, but I'm wondering whether it wasn't actually, a, it wasn't so much a question of standing shoulder to shoulder with the Americans because of previous alliances, but the harsh reality that the British defence establishment is extremely dependent on the US defence establishment to function. And there was this fear, despite the let out clause, clause that we had from uh, Colin Powell and others, that, well, or Rumsfeld, I believe it was at the time, who said, well, actually, you don't need to come along if you don't want to. Despite that let out clause, you know, I think Tony Blair himself had convinced himself. I don't think he lied, but I think he convinced himself that this was the righteous thing to do to spread. He'd bought into some of these freedom arguments, completely forgetting the reality on the ground and completely forgetting our own history in the region. Hugh? I'm a mere journalist, but I'm caught here between uh, Professor Clark and um, Claire Spencer, between the historian and Chatham House. And I'm, I'm wondering, where, where do I, as the man with the short-term view, with the, the microphone as magnifying glass, uh, I, I'm really not sure what to conclude, because perhaps in the long run, Iraq is a success if it turns into a viable united democracy. And the awful short-term pain, the terrible death toll it becomes toll becomes a historical but it, it is extraordinary but when you pull back and look at it historically um as somebody said to me in the american armed forces recently look at the end of the second world war what was the death toll from the hiroshima and nagasaki bombs were they immoral because of the death toll or in the long view was it ultimately a success because it brought to an end the Japanese War and the Second World War? And perhaps with the long view, with the benefit of history, Tony Blair might have been right to do what he did, and case, so might George Bush. But in that case, it was very Eric. clear that the war had come to an end. I mean, I mean the problem mm. is that, that, that I think Claire might agree with this, is that we created a situation within Iraq where, OK, torture wasn't going on and Saddam Hussein wasn't doing the killing, but other people were, and in very large numbers. I'm talking about in 20 years from now, looking back at it That's all. right, if Iraq exists then. Mm. But I, mean, so I think the judgment then will be, I mean, what, what in the Middle East as a whole... Was it better that, that it's better for Iraq that Saddam has gone? No doubt about it. Is it better for the region as a whole? That's what history will, will debate. What do you mean? Uh, there was stability there under him. Unpleasant stability, but stability. Exactly, yeah. And that Iraq is, is not a key player in the Middle East, but Iran is, Saudi Arabia is, Egypt is, Turkey is. Uh, and that we spent a lot of time worrying about actually a bit player who annoyed us 
as opposed to the big players Absolutely. that we should be thinking through. I'm thinking of the regional repercussions as well. I mean, it's just unbalanced the region in ways that we're still counting the cost. It was the wrong target at the wrong time when collectively the case for focusing more and finishing Afghanistan properly Quite. was abandoned and now we're facing even bigger problems over there. Um, the sentiment in the region, which was broadly sympathetic, even with the failures of the Clinton administration to finally fix this endless Arab-Israeli conflict was broadly positive. It's brought opinion of the US and by association Britain to the lowest ebb it's been since the colonial era. And having mentioned the colonial era, it's revived all the triggers of resentment and opposition uh, to the outside world and encouraged terrorism because occupying forces are seen very much within this context of a colonial past. Tell me something. Uh, something Hugh mentioned about um, the... The, the, British, um, the British military needing American military cooperation quite often. Quite often, nearly always. Nearly always. Is there anything, somebody, is there anything to suggest that the, um, the British chiefs of staff actually needed this war, Mike? They, they were certainly uh, sympathetic to the idea of a big conventional operation. Because if you remember, um, when 9-11 happened, we had a, a big safe Syria uh, exercise going on, 23,000 troops exercising in Oman. And the, the clear expectation was, uh, after September 2001, that these troops wouldn't come home, that they might actually go to fight a war in, in Afghanistan. And hanging around the bazaars of Whitehall, as I was at the time, you could feel a palpable sense, first of all, of, of of excitement, of buzz, and of relief that we, we were getting on to something a bit more straightforward than all these difficult Balkan operations with their grey areas and their political sensitivities. And also we in 1991 to... we had to force our way in. Exactly. Did and, they and, really and... think there were no grey areas in Iraq? Oh, of, of course they did. But there was a sense in which the British military felt, look, we, we know what we're doing now. We, we might go to Afghanistan. In fact, we didn't really. But we'll go to Afghanistan, we'll do something. When the Iraq war began to develop in 2002, the military, were they were almost relieved to be planning for something they knew how to do. Except there were some concerns. I oh, mean, sure, I remember yeah. the first Sea Lord actually getting independent legal advice to see whether this war was legal or not. And, As and, did and, the Chief of Staff. Yes, exactly. And I, think, and I think there were real, real sort of concerns, concerns at the top. I mm. mean, I think that the British could probably have said in the final analysis, no, we haven't got the second resolution. Mm. I'm not sure the fallout would have been necessarily that serious. And I think the fallout on British politics and the legitimacy of the British political system would have been a significant, significant OK, let's, let's go to the University of Southern Utah, where Michael Stathis is professor of politics. Michael, did the United States need the United Kingdom for that 2003 war? At the time, uh, the United Kingdom was that invaluable and steadfast ally, uh, right or wrong. Um, President Bush would not have, well, he would have had a much, much harder time selling the war here um, uh, without uh, the support of Tony Blair and the United Kingdom. Do you know, or is there any way of knowing what the United States or the American public believed was the reason for going to the war then? I think that's been uh, made uh, pretty clear. Two things. One, uh, and above all, the, Im the imminent threat of uh, weapons of mass destruction, particularly uh, nuclear weapons, in the hands of Saddam Hussein. And secondly, the belief that somehow Saddam Hussein w was tied to both Osama bin Laden and uh, to the events of 9-11.
But there wasn't that sense the Americans then said, well, we're going to have to do this anyway. We, we are on our own, and the British just, OK, if you want to come along, do so. I mean, the suggestion that, for example, that Donald Rumsfeld said, well, if you don't want to turn up, don't turn up. Well, uh, I, I, I think that uh, the, the American public had pretty much bought into what Bush called at the time the coalition of the willing. And above all, uh, they saw as, again, that steadfast ally in the form of the United Kingdom of, of, uh, of Tony Blair. Um, it uh, reassured the American public. It helped convince the American public that uh, this wasn't just uh, a harebrained uh, scheme on the part of Bush. This was something that was an international necessity and quite legitimate. Um, there's another side of this, of course, and that is that Blair probably needed... Um, needed that image that he had created um, after uh, 9-11. I mean, it, it, people used to joke, well, if he'd have been an American citizen, he could have got himself elected president. Mm -hmm. I uh, just... Well, I, th I think that's true. Um, now, I, I'm, I'm sure, uh, looking back at things, that there were those in the State Department and even the Pentagon that believed that... Uh, um, Iraq uh, could have been taken, Saddam Hussein could have been eliminated um, uh, without uh, the United Kingdom um, or Tony Blair. Um, but um, both the United Kingdom and Blair uh, were essential uh, for Bush uh, and his administration in, uh, in selling the war, in legitimizing the war to, uh, to the American public. Everybody knew that. Yeah, there was no other side of this, of course. There were people, in, for example, in the State Department who were very, very uh, concerned that by supporting, then Blair might have been brought down in the United Kingdom, and at a later stage in the conflict, or after the conflict, the United States would need Blair and, the, and, and his government to support them. Oh, I think that there were a number of risks uh, uh, involved. Um, but uh, I, I think that the primary uh, important point was to have uh, the appearance of that longtime ally uh, that uh, was not going to question uh, the uh, legality of the war, the necessity of the war, that, uh, as uh, Britain had been in so many other instances, uh, uh, there and ready to support the United States. And there, there was the general expectation in the American public this was as it should be. Right. Michael, we'll come back later on in the programme uh, because I want to talk about the American view of the British, not in 2003, but very much in 2009. Um, we're not quite halfway through this very special edition of the Sitrep Roundtable. The subject, as the UK pulls out of Iraq, is how do others see us? With me, um, Professor Michael Clark, um, Dr Claire Spencer... Uh, Alexander Nekrasov, Hugh Sykes of the BBC, and Professor Eric Grove. Just one particular thing about this, um, Michael Clark, uh, talking there about um, Donald Rumsfeld. I seem to remember Donald Rumsfeld back in 73, 74, yeah. when he was... Young, youngest Defence Secretary yeah, at that he, time. Yeah, and he was then... Yeah. He, before that, he was Permanent Secretary... At, yeah. uh, uh, no, Permanent Rep in, in NATO. In NATO, that's right. Saying in NATO with, with uh, Schlesinger... Um, now listen, at one time we're going to have to go in and secure the oil supplies of the Middle East. But I also remember you telling me, uh, when this just before mm. this thing starts, that oil had nothing to do with it. Yeah, well I still believe that, absolutely. Uh, and oil is relevant in the sense that it's, it's concerned with the reconstruction of, uh, of uh, Iraq and so on. But I mean, if, if Iraq had not been an oil-rich state... 
the policy would still have been essentially the same if Saddam was there. I mean, oil added a sort of spice to the whole thing, but it was never about oil. I mean, remember that, that you know, nobody can control, other than the Saudis, they, nobody can control the oil industry by uh, withholding production or, or flooding uh, the, the, the system. The system is controlled by the companies and the, uh, the regimes that, uh, that run it. Yeah. So the idea of you know, gr- grabbing Iraq's oil, I mean, Iraq's got to sell its oil at some point. Uh, whoever is in, in power in Iraq... It's, 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 it's not irrelevant, but it's by no means one of the drivers of the whole thing. Can we talk about the images of that war? Because to some extent that in influences how people might see us, Americans or anybody now. Um, Alexander, the shock and awe to me was, I mean, even just the phrase right at the beginning, this enormous bombardment. Uh, this was something almost in most people's minds totally new. Well, uh, new and not, because uh, if you remember the Second World War, we had those operations. But uh, the point is, you know, as as I was listening to all the people talking about uh, what the American point of view was and the British point of view was about the war, and um, I remember talking to the Russian officials uh, who were actually in close contact with Saddam, and I was asking them, so how is he feeling? I mean, there was a few months before the war. And they said, well, he feels that the Americans will not dare to do that. He actually convinced himself that by bluffing that he has all the nuclear weapons and so on, he was actually thinking that they were bluffing too. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, he sort of uh, boxed himself into this game. What did, the, what did the Russians think? Did they think he had them, the weapons? Uh, well, actually, he told the Russians that he had, yes. And that was, well, at least the ones I spoke to, because they actually were in contact with him. But it's also quite possible. It he was a sort of a double bluff. Well, but that was a system in which everyone lied to everyone else, mm. and nobody would tell him the truth. And, and there well, seemed... actually, actually, he did know. Well, I mean, he was the he man knew he didn't who have knew, strategic yes. weapons, but there, and, had, and, there had been chemical artillery shells used in the 91 war. Um, you know, chemical weapons, everyone seemed to believe they were in the sector next door. When, when commanders were debriefed, that is, Iraqi captured commanders, they all said, oh, no, I didn't have any in my sector, but I know they were in the sector next door. And in 1991, he attacked Israel. That's another very important ingredient, isn't it? Never mind yeah. whether there are chem- chemical, chemical mm. warheads or not. Isn't part of this, the part of the jigsaw puzzle in my mind, which has never been raised, hardly ever been raised, and certainly never really examined, has been what role did Israel play as... Um, as a, a country that might have been urging America to take action against Saddam Hussein, because if you don't, maybe we will. After all, they had attacked Saddam's, Saddam Hussein's nuclear facility at Osirak in 1981, very successfully, and put it out of business. Here was this country which, in 1991, had attacked Israel, Scud missile or two, landing on Tel Aviv, very low loss of life. They were never going to let that man um, ever again be in a position to attack, to attack them, were they? No, and also remember that, that, that great image of the statue that mm. was pulled down, because I was thinking of these images of war. Um, I remember somebody saying to me, you know where... The, you remember, there's this huge thing, and he's pointing. And uh, Israeli friends used to say, he's pointing at us. Um, and they, they were convinced that that was actually true. That is one, Hugh, one of the great images of the war. Again, the statue had just been dragged down. And do you remember the American, uh, the American soldier uh, getting his armoured vehicle and pull it, helping the Iraqis to pull it down. And, and also down below, if you look at the still photographs, there was one in particular, notably on the front page of, of Newsweek a few weeks later, uh, there is seen to be a very, very large muscle man um, with a massive great sledgehammer trying single-handedly to destroy the plinth that the statue was standing on. And last year I found him 
and he, he's called Al Yamani, which means, I believe, the, uh, the muscle man in, in Arabic. Or the uh, Yemeni. He, <laughs> or possibly the Yemeni, but Both. in this. <laughs> Uh, he's an Iraqi, and um, he still has the newspaper cuttings, and his day job now uh, is running a motorcycle repair uh, workshop in the centre of Baghdad, and um, he specialises in the Easy Rider motorcycle, and its name has just gone out of my mind. What, the Harley? Harley Davidson. He's a Harley Davidson specialist and has his own Harley Davidson and drives around Iraq on it. Another surreal image. But coming back to those Russians officials who mm. were in touch, and they told me that um, there were days were left, and they said, "Look, the, the 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 Saddam is not still expecting that the Americans will go through with it. I mean, to the very end. But he did tell the generals that if it happens in unlikely circumstance, the army should not fight; it should disappear. And it's exactly what it did. All the twenty thousand highly trained." Um, special forces, some of them trained in Russia, disappeared. And that's why I was to- always saying that from the first days of the war, they will come back. Mm. And they will be keep coming back and back and back. And they still are. And that's why mm. there will be a problem. Because the old Saddamists the surge, are still you know, there. The, the, the Americans didn't understand. This surge mm-hmm. didn't really work. I mean, it worked well in the PRs. And, and I, I, I remember uh, one of the Russians asking the Americans and said, how do you convince your president that things are going so well after the surge when they're not. There was silence. <laughs> Claire? I think, well, you were asking about um, the images of war. You've reminded me in shock and awe. I was actually in Dubai at the time where I have to say they were in deep denial when I kept requesting, could I turn on the television and watch this war? They reminded me that this war, madam, we may be in the Gulf, is as far away from us in Dubai as a war in Cyprus would be if you were sitting in London. So there, there was a sense in which... I think the the scale of the bombardment and then, of course, what came out afterwards, if you believe the numbers of the Iraq body count, which I believe uh, was certainly more credible than those of the Lancet, although subsequently people have said the Lancet wasn't so far from the truth. You're talking about hundreds of thousands of people who were killed and the, and the, the Iraq body count survey uh, decided that within the first year, I think it was 25,000 people, um, a third of those were killed in the first three weeks. So it, it's very well to say that this whole thing unleashed, you know, Al-Qaeda, which wasn't there before, but they crept into the vacuum that was created. But a very large part of the death toll was due to this very imprecise, I'm afraid to say, smart bombs have never convinced me, bombing of Baghdad and the other cities. And I think this is something that we, we can say, oh, well, that was then and, you know, we're, we're creating a more stable situation. People have been affected this, not obviously directly the relatives and friends of these people, but across the region. The callousness, I think it's seen as that the British could subscribe to this kind of uh, massive bombing and massive loss of human life in the name of removing a, a dictator who, of course, you know, in some circles remained popular, partly because he hadn't killed so many people, but, the, but it's, it's the lack of equivalence, I think. Mm. It's people justifying the fact that at least under Saddam, I remember very clearly, and I'll finish on this in the summer, they interviewed who was a very striking, deep-voiced Shia woman. She was dressed black, you know, in black from head to toe, and the interviewer probably from the BBC said, are you pleased that, you know, Saddam's, oh yes, she said he killed my son, and I would have killed him with my own hands. They got rid of Saddam, I'm, gl- I'm glad, but why did they get rid of the electricity, uh, the you know the gas, the water, uh, and any kind of calm and civilized life, and no security. And she was quite right. She I learned a very important phrase simply because I've heard it over and over and over again. I didn't have to make an effort to learn it. Um, 
Um, we have freedom, but we have no security. Mm. Uh, they say it now. They were saying it to me in demonstrations against the Americans just a few days after the end of the war and the beginning of the occupation in 2003. Mm. A man came out to me and said uh, he was complaining about the electricity, about the soaring price of cooking gas, about the massive petrol queues that they did there to, to, to line your car up into just to fill up your, your car with petrol in this oil-rich nation. And I said, yes, but for heaven's sake, you got rid of Saddam and you're standing here talking to me and there are no secret police about to hang you from the nearest lamppost for talking to a foreigner. He said, yes, but what use is freedom of speech if I can't function in my life and I have no security? Yes, because that phrase is an extension, I suppose, 2,000 years ago of Tacitus, isn't it? Um, we created a wilderness and called it peace. Well, ha, you said that, I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> I'm a BBC correspondent. but yes, just, And also, with that kind of... Somebody once said, said to me, I've got BBC written through me like a piece of rock. Playing devil's advocate to what, uh, what Claire Spencer just said. Shock and awe, I question whether it is fair to call it enormous bombardment. I drove around Baghdad a week uh, after the end of that war. So, in other words, exactly a month after the shock and awe evenings, which, don't forget, were shown live on television. Mm. So it was safe enough during this enormous bombardment for television cameras to be on the roof of the Palestine Hotel over on the other side of the river. And as you drove around Baghdad, yes, of course, some of these bombs were not precise. And, of course, there, were, there was appalling uh, loss of life. But many of the buildings that were targeted, most of the ones I saw, were ministries, the Sports Ministry of Uday, uh, the Foreign Affairs Ministry and the television station. And nearly all the buildings all around were completely untouched. So it's not like a Second World War carpet bomb. No. Let me, let me just, just try this out on you, and then we've got to move on. Um, I was trying... Uh, I was asking what pub, uh, sort of Im images um, people remembered, and I was talking to a group of, of uh, graduate students. So they would have been sort of teenagers... Middle, teen, middle teens uh, when this happened. And I'll give you the list, some of the list here. They talked about the toppling of uh, Saddam's statue. They talked, interestingly enough, um, because I think a lot of people have forgotten it, the six Royal Military Police Officers, mm -hmm. uh, the, the killing of... They, they thought that was quite stark. That's it, uh, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, and they also remembered, or they vaguely remembered because they bothered to look it up, uh, George Bush... The aircraft carrier, mission oh, yes. accomplished. Mm -hmm. um, Abu Ghraib, I said, and they said, no, no. George no. Bush didn't say mission accomplished. It no. was only the banner behind The banner, him. yes. And mm. um, said, Ab I said, Abu Ghraib, they said, no, 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 no. Um, the execution of Saddam, oh, yes, yeah, the execution of Saddam. I mean, again, rather like the 6th military police, it was, it was stark. Mm. We are actually going to do this, uh, and that's it. Um, and I said, then in your mind, what went wrong? And they said, well, nobody knew what to do. Does mm -hmm. that make sense mm -hmm. to anybody here? Absolutely. It's, it, that is an image of war, isn't it? Totally. I'm, I feel I'm hogging. Let me just very briefly yeah. uh, um, conclude the, the thought that, that I had just now, um, uh, prompted also by what you've just said. Christopher, mm. uh, I spent many an evening with a battalion commander on embeds. I was embedded a lot with the Americans and with the British in Iraq in 2004, 5, 6. Um, and he said, I wish I could go on the record, Hugh, I wish I could go on the record. W we succeeded in getting rid of Saddam, but we totally failed because we didn't have a plan. And he's a military historian, this man, and he told me something I didn't know, uh, and I hope I'm remembering this accurately. He said 
Did you realise that in Washington in 1941, before Pearl Harbour, there was already an office for the reconstruction of Germany with a staff of eight people? We never did that for this conflict. We only planned for the conflict. We never planned for the aftermath. And the chaos and the anarchy and the violence and the mayhem that followed was bound to follow because all we created was a vacuum. When you're going round, uh, Hugh, um, I mean, we're in America for the elections, etc., how do you think other people see the British as a result of Iraq? Do you know what? Uh, the answer's going to disappoint you. I don't think they think that we're relevant at all. Uh, I heard a grim joke, which was they, they described Blair as Bush's poodle, and then they wondered uh, why the poodle went into Iraq backwards, which was a, um, a, a grim comment on, on the initial phases of the 2003 war and the advance towards Umm Qasr. The Russians call the British the reluctant invaders, you know, because... Uh, what do they call them what? The reluctant invaders, because mm. basically uh, the Russian um, military people whom I was talking to, they were saying it's a completely different picture how those two armies were operating. And they said the Americans basically scored the biggest hit against themselves. Now that the people everywhere will say, yes, these guys just move in, have no idea what they're going to do. They just whack a million people. I mean, the, the, the casualties, by the way, is a million people now, uh, overall, overall. And, um, and, they, and they don't even have the heart to ex accept that, they, that they, they even hide their own casualties from their own people. The Russian estimates were much higher, by the way, than uh, the Americans were accepting of their own casualties. And uh, the Russians say it's about 12,000 now, they're dead. They have dead. 12,000 dead Americans. 12,000 dead Americans. And, and as opposed to 4,500. 4,000, yes, yes. But I mean, I, I'm just saying to you what they're, they're saying to me. Where are the bodies? Um, the bodies are dead in Germany and so on. They say they take the wounded out and they don't count them in. Well, the number of wounded, of course, is absolutely enormous. Yes, and it's one exactly. Of exactly. That's where they're playing the figures because they told me they did the same in Chechnya. Okay. Talking of Germany, um, I just wonder how. Other European states and people see the British after Iraq. On the line from Brussels, European analyst Heinz Schilter. Um, Heinz, um, was the European image of the United Kingdom in Iraq as much part of the Blair image as the actions of the British or the rights and wrongs of the event? Uh, yes, it was definitely the Blair image. And I'm very uh, glad for what Hugh said earlier uh, about the poodle, because that is what one felt on the continent of Europe. And the question was asked... How far are the British really relevant to the questions uh, of today? But let me make one caveat that is very important. I have been in this business for over 20 years, and I've never heard anything but respect and admiration for the British forces. But we have to separate that admiration and respect from British policy. The policy has become irrelevant. Britain was, from a European point of view, irrelevant in Iraq. And now, if you look at the problems that we are having, Britain has become prop probably less relevant than it has been today. But the question is, what will be the new agenda under um, Barack Obama and probably a new British leadership? That is what I think Europe is looking for. You see, I'm, I'm just wondering, if, from what you're saying there, whether continental Europe decided that the United Kingdom was to be seen as a United States ally, or, or was it to be seen as a nation that really believed in the operation on its own account? Well, it wasn't even seen as an ally. It was seen as an adjunct. I think it was worse than that. It was not... An, an, an ally is a partner with some uh, modicum of uh, influence. And the feeling over here was that Britain didn't even have that one. It was already priced in. 
the Yo Blair factor. You remember that famous mm. dictum. So from that point of view, I think Britain lost a lot of political influence in Europe um, with regards to its role in Iraq. And again, this is not about the armed forces. I want to state that categorically. And does that um, does that show up in any other forum? And I'm thinking, for example, when a British uh, foreign secretary or prime minister gets up and says that we want uh, from the continent of Europe and our NATO allies more effort in Afghanistan, is is that voice less powerful because of Iraq? Yes, it is. Um, if you take the German example, um, there has been a lot of demand that the Germans should not focus solely on the north, but go to the south as well. But if I follow the German debate correctly, it is the Dutch, the Danish, the Norwegian, the Canadian voice that is heard, because that hurts the Germans more than a British voice, because that is, again, uh, in the aftermath of the Blair Bush uh, administration, completely ignored. Heinz Schulte, thank you very much indeed. Michael Clark, you were saying, for example, that you thought that history would be, treat um, Tony Blair a little more kindly than he is at the moment. I wonder if Afghanistan saved Blair uh, from closer examination. Well, it might have done, um, but I think Heinz Schulte is exactly right that uh, Afghanistan uh, is a, it suffers from the legacy of the politics of the Iraq war. And I think what it reveals, in a sense, what he was saying, is that there is a perception, and I think it's a perception shared by many of the policy wonks in London as well, that we have lost the ability to think strategically. We can do tactics, and our forces still do a pretty good job with what they've got, but we, the country, do not think and behave strategically. So what Blair was doing, he wasn't being strategic in Iraq, he was positioning with the United States and feeling that he had no alternative. And he and he didn't play his hand particularly well. And to be fair to and, and to be fair to Blair actually, which I'm not normally, but um, on, the, on 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 this occasion the historian in me forces me to be. The he did the British did achieve getting the Americans to go down the UN route. Mm. If there had been a second resolution and it had gone against the Iraqis, then in a sense that would have vindicated the position of the British. It was unfortunate for the British that they weren't able to get that second resolution, and therefore they got the worst of all worlds. Yeah, Blair saw himself... Because now the memory is completely other. It's that, you know, the UK and US were breaking international law, Mm. and I'm afraid that's how the the Mm. memory in the region has it. Yeah, but and the interesting thing, I mean, there have been five inquiries, one way or another, the mm. Defence Committee, the ISC, the Intelligence Security Committee, the Butler Report, and so on. There've been five inquiries, all of which, from different angles, have looked at this question: Did the government deceive the public? And every single one has said no, they didn't. But the public believes that they were deceived. Mm. So because the, they were the, selective the, about the exactly, evidence they exactly. chose to use. The yeah. intelligence was, yeah. was cherry-picked. The, the, the legal judgment is that the government did not behave p- mm. illegally, but the political judgment is that it did, and that's what history will basically record. But Blair was a very weak leader, and that's why he had to have this war. The new Labour project died in 1998. Everybody realised this shallow man, a <coughs> chancer, who got there by chance... Uh, he, has, he has no policy, he has nothing. I don't think they realised in 1998. No, no, we, I think oh, there was a joke already in 1998, by the way, telling that if, if Blair wanted to leave when he was popular, he should have left the next day after the election. So, okay, oh, always, believe me, that was already... The day after poor Diana died. Yes, we, we, we bring you all views in this programme. I want to go back to the United States and to the Professor of Political Science at the University of Southern Utah, Michael Stathis. 
Uh, Michael, the final question has to be, how does the United States see the United Kingdom uh, now after the Iraq experience? You know, oddly enough, uh, while George Bush made sure, he went to great extents uh, to make sure that there was visible evidence of his ties to Blair in 2003, it, it's pretty clear that privately he held less faith in associations with allies, including the United Kingdom, than Barack Obama does now. This president sees the absolute necessity of strong and positive ties to the world. And the United Kingdom is the first address on that vital list. Michael Stasis, thank you very much indeed. Um, I'm just wondering if there's a if it, is this a short way to summarise how others see us, uh, Claire? No, I don't think there is. But I, I, because I have so much dealing with with the Middle East and Arab world, I I do see the residue of there's a sort of um, ambivalence, you know, of of almost. For example, I'll give you an example. I was in Iran on a, on a mission. I think it was about 2004, 2005, where a young woman Iranian student stood up and said, "We understand why the U.S. has done this. Why has Britain done it?" And uh, talking obviously about the the invasion of Iraq, and there's this ambivalence between the historical memory of seeing Britain as this great manipulator and you know influence, and the British understand the region in a way that the Americans can't because of their history there, and this utter disbelief that a nation that was seen as you know being Arabist in terms of foreign policy or the Foreign Office was always seen as as, as Arabist and pro-Arab had suddenly thrown all this out of the window. They had no idea what they were doing. They weren't listening to people. There was a sense that, why aren't they listening to us? We've told them this isn't going to work. They, know, they should understand the region. You've got the history. And all, the, all of this was utterly discarded in favour of the alliance and following the US. Influence. And sadly, there is a perception in certain quarters that in some ways the British fail militarily in counterinsurgency. I've heard it argued, I think wrongly myself, but I've heard it argued uh, that in fact, uh, you know, that in fact the, the much-vaunted British counterinsurgency didn't work. This is an overseas view. It is, it, an American view in particular, actually. Yes. You see, the, the, another side of it, um, uh, Mike, the fact that we... We give an impression in the United Kingdom, anyway, that we've never been Europeans. Mm. You see, we, I mean, we really haven't got along with that. I mean, the Hundred Years' War, when it finished, that settled that sort of business about being a European. I wonder if um, we are therefore stuck, whatever we try to say, we're stuck with this sort of Anglo-Saxon US tag. So we are, yeah. And, and, you know, we've done very well out of it historically. They said, you know, the modern world from which we've done so well was made up on three acronyms, UP, UK, USA, United Provinces, United Kingdom, United States. We are the ones historically from the 17th century onwards who've made the rules. And that, that rule-making ability passed through from the late 17th century to the late 20th century. We did very, very well out of that. And that defines us. And, and in the modern world, it still defines us as a transatlantic power. And the problem is seems to me that we 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 define that in a sentimental way so we say to them you know we are with the americans because we're cousins we're like two cousins who own the business and we are destined to run the business together even if we don't like each other very much now the, the alternative way of seeing it is it, it's not about that sort of sentiment and that's that's the way blair and bush saw it it was sentiment they were cousins they had to do this together 
the, the, the Obama view, I think, is a much healthier view. It's partnership. Let's see what we can bring to the party. Let, let's take a hard-nosed view of what we can offer compared to our European allies, what the Americans want, and what, can, what, you know, what we can do for each other. It seems to me we could have a much healthier relationship, a post-UP-UK-US uh, uh, relationship in the new era that Obama seems to promise. Hugh, I was just wondering if the... I mean, last week, especially with the uh, the going of the, uh, Speaker Martin from the House of Commons, or he doesn't go until uh, June the 21st. Do you think anybody outside the British well, I just knows want, about yes, this? Well, I don't, I don't know, but you see, um, when the night that, uh, that he announced that he would be going, I, um, I looked to see what other people were reporting. Um, the French were reporting it, uh, CNN were reporting it. I mean, quite high up in the bulletins, uh, Russia today was reporting it. Al Jazeera was, was reporting it. And I thought to myself, are we getting a big view of the, of, of the British? It's not the best view of the were British. Were they reporting Speaker Martin and were they reporting all the cheating MPs? Yes, I yes. think it's the crisis well, there was, in Parliament. It was the crisis in Parliament. Now, why ask this? I put this in the context of the question we're asking. How, do the British, how are the British seen by other people um, as a res- post-Iraq? And I just wondered if it's part of that whole decline they say, well, what do you expect? The decline that I see from how long is it now? It's more than six years of going to Iraq regularly is, I think we used to be better at understanding the Arab world uh, at learning the Arab cultures, at learning the language, at empathising with the people, at asking them what they want, at respecting them for who they are, and in the case of Iraq, they are uh, resourceful, resilient, educated, generous, kind, family-loving people, lots of the qualities which I think the British ascribe to themselves. And I think the greatest failure of all during this Iraqi conflict has been a complete inability to... a complete underestimating of the Iraqi people. And if we had gone there and in some way planned properly for the future after the overthrow of Saddam Hussein, put in a proper programme for the reconstruction and total rehabilitation... But it wasn't our show, was it? It wasn't our show, but we had the ability to influence that show, and our failure to influence it in that respect, I think, was a terrible, terrible mistake, because in the end, we, like the Americans, ended up being frightened of the Iraqis instead of having them on our side. Right. And as a result, we lost, and we had to run away. Alexander, I don't want to uh, lump you know, the view of, the Russia, of Russia on you, but how, do, how does Russia see us now? You mean at the moment? Yeah. Well, we are laughing, of course, because uh, the so-called crisis in Parliament, I mean, it's just they're pussycats compared to our deputies mm. who have villas in Monte Carlo <laughs> and so on. And basically, the nature, uh, the reason of that crisis for us is not because somebody took 200 pounds to clean his moat or something. The reason is because Parliament under Blair became irrelevant. Mm-hmm. And that is the crisis. The crisis is not in the system mm. of expenses, but in the political system. Okay, and tra- that's what they're missing. You yeah. see that some of the commentators... Translate that into our expression of, uh, of, of support for the United States and also a military adventure in, into Iraq. Is that seen as, oh, well, of course, it's the British, that's what you expect now? Well... 
we you see the Russians look at the British from a point of view of a former colonial empire, two colonial empires, you know, who who stood up to the Nazis, won the war and got, went bankrupt. Now, during the 90s, the British had enormous influence over the Americans. In the Balkans, so many moves by the Americans were stopped by the British. You'd be surprised mm -hmm. to learn. And then Blair squandered that influence. Mm -hmm. And the people who came in with Bush said, no, 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 we're not going to talk to them. Old Europe. And, 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 and that's why this situation came. If, there was a, if this communication didn't break down between London and Washington, the Iraqi war might not even have happened, the second one, I mean. Okay, big question now then, because we've got a couple of minutes left or three minutes left. We'll start with you, Eric. Mm -hmm. um, how do we see ourselves after that war and to some extent as a consequence of that war? Well, I think the British have had a tendency for some time to underestimate their position in the world. I mean, we do arguments, you know, the RUSI, for example, was Britain still a great power? I think at the second rank, Britain still is a great power. So it ought to be spending as much on defence as it does. And I, th I don't think that Iraq and possibly Afghanistan have done much to enhance that position. It is very much a matter of perception, but I think Britain will still remain an important actor and will be regarded. I remember, I remember UN reps saying, I was surprised by how many people asked me what the British thought about the voting system in Guatemala or something. You know, that, that this is something Britain has a much greater position in the world, and I agree we have squandered so much of this, in part because we ignored our experts on what was going on. The, 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 the superficiality of the policy, rather typical of Blair, was, I think, its greatest fault. Claire, how do you think we see ourselves now? I think there's a, there's a difference between the political classes and public opinion. I think public opinion was always much more sensible on this. Why are we doing this? We had the public demonstrations, the debates. They were asking the right questions. You know, do we have enough proof? And I think, in some sense, they feel vindicated but chastised. I think they, there was a support for the forces as the armed forces as they went into battle. But this, this terrible sense that we were sending them into a rather futile arena mm. uh, for not much gain, and I think that's been vindicated. What I would say, sadly, though, is while the expertise is still there, it is dwindling, and there is a new generation, I'm sorry to say this, in the Foreign Office, that it really hasn't got that expertise. They really haven't carried it on. They have been excluded. It's not entirely their fault, but they've been excluded by the government machinery, and I'm afraid unless there is a root and branch cleaning up of Parliament and the executive in this country, we are still going to have spin doctors in and around number 10 actually deciding foreign policy because they know best they've read an article in the paper last week. And I really do think that lesson hasn't been learnt yet. It all struck me, uh, Hugh, an irony that, you know, the march against the war was almost coincidental with the march against the banning of fox hunting. And there was something very sort of, I don't know, sort of British about that. How do we see ourselves now? Uh, Claire used the expression futile arena. Um, I was in Afghanistan towards the end of last year, and from what I hear from Afghans uh, as I walk the streets of Kabul, very similar to what I hear from Iraqis as I walk the streets of Baghdad and Basra, which is, why on earth are you here? You've been here for a long time. What on earth have you achieved? Um, and I, I find it very hard to answer any of those questions, mm -hmm. uh, especially in Afghanistan, at least in Iraq, um, the British helped to get rid of the foul dictator, uh, Saddam Hussein. In Afghanistan, really, the place doesn't look very much different to when I first visited it in 1979. And in a nutshell, I think there is something deeply wrong. I think people with our um, foreign services, uh, diplomats, etc., I don't think they're streetwise anymore. I think they're all... Um, uh, 
encased by health and safety and security mm. considerations. I walk the streets and listen to people, and I think that is absolutely essential and priceless and invaluable. And if our representatives don't do that and hide behind their security walls uh, in their embassies instead of getting out there and talking to people rather than officials, we will lose what little knowledge we have of these places. Mike, I suppose the final question has to be, um, Iraq told us a lot. But I wonder if it told us never again would we go into such an expedition as a coalition. It certainly makes it less likely. Um, the, the general view is that, that these, were, these will be looked on as adventures that we won't do again in those sort of circumstances. But against that, the argument is also that future conflict, even if it is between developed powers will look a bit more like Afghanistan than what we used to anticipate during the Cold War. The, the, the need to operate very flexibly, the war among the people, is, is going to be a big feature of conflict for the next 50 to 70 years, and we've got to get used to that. The question for us is, which conflicts are our battles? Um, you know, what do we regard as in our interest to get involved in? And that's, that's something that the political classes, the jury's out on that as far as the political classes. is so concerned. So I suppose the next question, though, there had to be a final, final question, isn't there? Is that means that in 18 months' time or within 18 months when there's going to be strategic defence review, so will, we, yeah. will that be reflected? What uh, are you talking about? We decide which battles to get into. That's the question which uh, institutes like ours represented around the table are grappling with at the moment. Because when the review starts to happen, that question will be too big for civil servants and ministers mm. to take on. So unless people like us take it on, it will be ignored. It mustn't be. And why might it be ignored? Simply because people haven't got the... Haven't got the well, nails to get in there. Partly, but also because a defence review will be driven by finance. It'll be mm. driven by the fact that we're bankrupt. <laughs> where we came in. That's it. Thank you to Michael Clark, Claire Spencer, Alexander Nekrasov, Hugh Sykes and to Eric Grove. If you want to get in touch, simply email sitred at bfbs.com or if you want to listen again or podcast this programme, visit bf bfbs.com forward slash sitred. We'll be back. So will Mary in the hut. Bye. <laughs>